It's Narrative Live with Zev Shalev here and Eric Garland. How are you, Eric? Doing great. You have a big update coming up about the Agape <laughs> schools, which we covered extensively, but there's a good update coming and a real reaction from a, an important politician in your state. So tell us a little bit of what we can expect on that. Well, that this is not about one school and that even the top echelon of the Missouri government and the Republican Party is admitting that the corruption at the state and even local level is so great that our children are not safe without intervention directly from the federal government. Wow, that's a hell of an admission. And Robert Buckland, one of the survivors of Agape School, will be here. He'll talk to us a little bit about his reaction on that. But let's talk a little bit about what is not happening tomorrow, because there was an expected meeting on the Jan 6 committee, but it's not happening because of the storm, Hurricane Ian, barreling towards mm. Florida. So they've decided to postpone it until the 28th. We'll be here to cover that as well. But we still have a lot of good information about what they're intending to cover. And we want to look at some of the really interesting new information that's come out about Roger Stone, including these clips that are quite inflammatory. They came from a Danish mentry crew, which followed Stone for a long period of time. They've just released their movie or about to release their movie, The Coming Storm or The Making of a Storm or something. We'll play some of the clips from that. It's pretty eye-opening. Roger Stone, if you want to go back and look at this, you can find our case for Roger Stone was probably broadcast on narrative on January the 13th or something like that. We already knew how important he was to this plot and uh, we had figured out exactly why he was so important. So uh, you can go back and Google uh, Narrative Live and the case for Roger Stone and you'll see that, that broadcast, but we'll review some of that tonight. So I guess we don't know to what extent this next committee hearing is gonna be about Roger Stone, but I'm gonna play you a couple of clips and let's start with this one from this documentary, which really blew my mind because there is some language here and some predetermination planning for this coup, which is quite explicit. This first clip comes from, believe it or not, June of 2020, before the elections. This is Roger Stone talking to the Danish documentary maker, Christopher Guldbranson, and this, the movie's called The Storm Foretold. And here he is, Roger Stone, foretelling what is gonna happen after the elections. What they're assuming is the election will be normal. The election will rouse results. Oh, these are the California results? Sorry, we're not accepted. It was challenging the court. If the electors show up at the Electoral College, our guards will throw them out. I'm the president. You're not stealing Florida. You're not stealing Ohio. I'm challenging all of it. And the judges we're going to are judges I appointed. You're not stealing the election. That's what, that's basically what Bush did to Gore. So if they want to run a bunch of three ballots, we'll have an investigation. We'll say these ballots are paid. Your results are invalidated. Goodbye. That's the way it's going to have to look. It's going to be really nasty. But, but you cannot count on, we're not going to get in our selection. Right. So let's say that Trump is a little behind right now, which he probably is. That doesn't bother me, but he has no wins in our selection. We're going to have an honest selection. They're still, they're still in the slide of Florida like hell. So, well, it's not the first time it's happened in this country, but it happens around the world. Yeah. So he's going to have to, he's going to have to fight for the prejudice in the courts. Our next election will be decided in the courts because they cheat and we don't cheat. They don't cheat. <laughs> they just rig the system so they don't have to cheat. Go ahead, Eric. What's your reaction to that? So Roger Stone is a great friend to dictators around the world who want to cast America's elections as illegal and invalid as theirs are. So he's carrying a lot of their water. Some of this stuff is so cartoonish. I wonder if he hasn't cut a deal with the feds and it wasn't just Pied Pipering <clears throat> all these various foreign operations to discredit America's democracy. 
I agree with you that it sounds like he's got some sort of deal because otherwise, why would he be so outrageous about it? But I'll give you an answer for why he might be like that in a bit. But what do you mean by the Pied Pipering piece of it? Well, you really want to rip these networks out at the roots that have been driving this towards this point where nobody believes in American democracy so that we'll prefer autocracy since we're going to get it anyhow. Roger Stone's a one of a kind. I mean, the guy's been around forever. He's seen much. He's partnered with, since the Nixon days, he's partnered with Paul Manafort, who has been all over the world and been a witness and an operative in so many different places. The bad boy of uh, politics, Lee Atwater. I mean, these guys were, they're not just operators, they're witnesses to stuff. They're like one man intelligence services in a lot of ways. Yeah, they're provocateurs, really. They really are the challenges in the system and they have, this has been their role since the sixties. I mean, this is what they do. And look, credit where credit's due, these guys are smart. Roger Stone, say what you will about him. I mean, the guy crafts his message. He gets stuff done. He can bring people along with him. And so if I'm trying to rip out decades of intelligence operations to domestic and foreign that aim to rip up America's democracy and weaken us for our adversaries, I don't want to just take out the Roger Stones. I want to take out everybody that would fund this stuff, everybody that would go along with it, publish a newsletter, try and arm up people and give them gas money to get to DC to do this kind of thing. And maybe when your spokesperson is talking to the Danish, who are NATO allies, of course, a country that has its complexities, Danske Bank, of course, does a little bit of money laundering for the Russians here and there. Having a TV camera just proving exactly what these guys were planning on doing. And I mean, there's no high, this is, is not subtle trade craft. No, but I gotta say the documentary crews are always a bit of a tell that something is afoot because if you're going to be committing a crime, you generally don't want the documentary crews following you along <laughs> <laughs> to, to document the entire thing. But in two cases here, in his case, Roger Stone's case, but also in Tario's case, Enrique Tario of the Proud Boys, they've had documentary crews in the most unbelievable of places with most unbelievable access to witness these criminal events taking place. To me, that begins to be a little bit like who's really paying these crews to do what, but regardless, these crimes took place and the crews were there to capture it. And these guys took part in that crime, whether they were doing it as informants, we don't know, we won't know, but well, maybe we will, depending on what Mar-a-Lago's documents are released. But I just a couple of points to pick up on what you're saying. Yes, it's entirely possible that Roger Stone is just trying to reel these people in, although I think his anger there Boy, that seems quite real. And this was just the day before his initial court sentence was commuted by Trump. So it's a little, I think there was, he was under a lot of pressure and I think there was something going on there, but who knows, there might be a try to do a sting for these foreign organizations. I'm amazed by this collage of photos here because we speak a lot about Nixon and we speak a lot about Trump when we talk about Stone, but we forget about Reagan. And Reagan was part of that Stone world. He was a big advisor to Reagan because Reagan is largely considered better than the other Republican presidents. He doesn't get the same brush as Nixon and Trump, but you know, really Reagan did some terrible things as well. And uh, would, who I don't see there you know, who? is Bush 41. Ah, that's true. Just he, a thought. He was not, not part of that group, was he? He's of a bit of a dead. Bush 41 was of a bit of a different tenor. He was more of a CIA man. I'm sure he was. was. More of a... And I would say, 
Roger Stern might be an Israeli guy. I don't know who he works for. He claims to be a Zionist. So maybe he works for them. Maybe he works for other people. But he certainly has a large roster of clients, including Saudi Arabia in the past, including Israel, including you name it. He's had a lot of work for a lot of people. So... He's a talented guy and uh, he knows a lot of folks. I just wanted to riff on the having a documentary crew. Yeah. Who doesn't have a documentary crew like during the elections at this time of year? Hmm. Leonard Leo. <laughs> the Koch brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Very sight. The U-lines. Those guys, isn't it funny? Like those guys, I would think Leonard Leo was uh, on the edge of his seat seeing how that was all going to go, but I don't think he had uh, high def cameras pointing in his face. So whenever I see somebody that that's just their whole thing is the media, I go, this person is supposed to be the, like the, the ringleader. Actually, I want to drill down on something you just mentioned about Leonard Leo, because he, of course, is the Supreme Court stack, the stack, the courts guy. And in that clip, we just saw from Stone, he talks a lot about, it'll be our judges that we appointed that are going to go to adjudicate these things. Now, of course, that's exactly what's happening in the Mar-a-Lago case, but it does sort of implicate the Republicans in the Senate who've been a, who are passing and approving all these judges and justices at a great rate. It does pull them into this conspiracy a little bit because what he's saying is part of this conspiracy is that the courts is going to be where we decide this thing. And who's deciding who's sitting on the courts? The GOP senators. So now we've got potentially the courts themselves entangled in a conspiracy, judges entangled in a conspiracy, and maybe the senators. Supreme Court justices, Supreme perhaps? Court justices, who's certainly talking about Citizens United and go back to Reagan. That's an interesting period of time where you can think about Clarence Thomas as a very different kind of guy when you think about uh, his wife's involvement. But you know what I'm saying? There's a bigger conspiracy afoot here. It includes Leonard Leo. It includes the Koch brothers. Sure, it includes Roger Stone and Donald Trump and all these other operatives. But there are judges and there are people who appoint judges also apparently involved in this conspiracy. Yeah, and the use of that word, our judges, that's a very specific possessive adjective. It suggests that somebody belongs to someone <laughs> else. Now, when you're appointed to the federal bench, it's a lifetime appointment. And the assumption is that we give you this job for life so that you are no longer looking for another job title that you are covered for the rest of your life and your decisions will get to go into the fabric of the judiciary for the future of the country. It's really an incredible honor to be put up there and how tawdry to be owned by some private citizens. I mean, I surely don't know who Roger was referring to, but you know, I mean, I would hate to be a judge owned by anyone, Roger Stone or Leonard Lear or anyone. It suggests that there could be a real need for many of these judges to recuse themselves because they've been identified as being part of this conspiracy. And certainly this three Supreme Court justices, they could probably find themselves needing to explain why they would even be allowed to adjudicate any cases that are brought up in front of them for the elections. I mean, it's a reach, really but it's interesting. interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. What if there were whole networks of corruption, like mm. in the court staff and clerks and federal judges and appellate judges and were on the way up to SCOTUS mm. and they were really, they, what if the penetration had gotten so deep that they, the, some people who thought they could overthrow this country thought they could rely on that whole network down mm. from bottom all the way up through the top. And as he said, this look, this election isn't a real election, this election. 
gosh, Roger's really doing us a solid here if you're looking to clear out some judicial corruption mm -hmm. here, because he just said, and he's a witness to so much, he said the penetration of the American federal judiciary is to the point that people can overthrow our entire democracy uniquely through the judges. Yeah, and that it's been planned that way. I mean, that's certainly what the Federalist Society has been doing. It's certainly what the Council for National Policy has been arguing and has been in the field doing. And we've seen their appointments. I mean, they've certainly appointed very activist kind of judges. Now, there's nothing wrong with activist judges if they're fair, but he's saying basically in this really historic event where we're going to try and steal the election and the democratic process from the American people, we've enlisted judges and justices in this case. And Leo's billions of dollars behind him make it possible that these guys have been bought off. It's not unlikely. That's in fact what's been going on. I'm not sure how you deal with that, but it's, it's a unique proposition. It would be, be interesting to know who from May of 2020 through February of 2021, which of these insurrectionist leaders were talking overtly or back channel to which district courts, which circuits of appeals, which mm. Supreme Justice spouses. All that's very interesting, right? It is very interesting. Before we leave Roger, and there's a couple more clips I want to play from his uh, documentary there. He's right in the middle of this conspiracy. There's no doubt that everyone in January the 6th, like he was in the Mueller report, or should have been in the Mueller report, the very nexus of everything that was happening in 2016 related to the Russians. Here he is also at the center of everything related to January the 6th, whether it's the Proud Boys, which were among his security, the Oath Keepers who were his security. He certainly was involved in QAnon. He was right there alongside Alex Jones, promoting everything in Infowars. The, the Women for Trump organization, the predecessor organization to the Women for Trump organization was actually run by his wife. That's how close he was to oh, that. Yeah. Really? Yeah, his ex-wife, sorry, I should say. And of course, he's right there with MAGA. Like, he's right there in the middle of everything there. So that might be real. It might be that he's in the middle of the conspiracy. It might be a ruse that he's in the middle of the conspiracy and the real plotting is taking place elsewhere. But it's an unusual thing to find someone so central to a historic crime as he is. And uh, we on narratives have exposed many times him there with the Oath Keepers. You can see they were actually wearing an Oath Keepers hat. This was the day before January the 6th when he was headlining a protest outside the Supreme Court. And there's other photos, of course, with him with these Oath Keepers, an unusual group of people to be associating with and all the way up to and including the day of January the 6th. We've now learned as well that he was in communication with Stuart Rowe on the 19th of January, which is a little bit later than uh, he was to the leaders of the Proud Boys that he, we know that, that he was talking to Enrique Tario on the 5th and the 6th of January. But now we also know that on the 19th, he was talking to Stuart Rhodes, who went on trial today, if I'm not mistaken. His trial opened up today. They're doing voir dire jury selection. Okay. So there's a lot of interesting things still that we'll learn more, I'm sure, throughout this trial about what kind of activity Rhodes and Stone and Enrique Tario and others were involved with. When they were dealing with by the, uh, setting up January the 6th. Yeah. By the way, this, uh, you've got the Chiron there reading Yale grad. This is Yale's least favorite <laughs> promotional material that they have in history. <laughs> I just had to note that because I was like, really Yale? Thank you so much. <laughs> it's really, man, it's really important. There's a lot of people who have been to some of these elite schools that have been recruited into these terrible organizations that we think that they're supposed to denote, uh, certain positive uh, association, but yeah, 
Yale grad, Stuart Rhodes. <laughs> Let's not forget the second part of that was former Ron Paul, which means he was right there with the Tea Party, which means he's plugged into the Russian network. The entire Tea Party was inspired by Ron Paul, came out of Ron Paul's very good friendship with Russia. He went there many times, just like Rand Paul does. Here's another Roger Stone clip from this documentary from A Storm Foretold. This one is really critical. I pay attention to everything he's saying right here. I suspect it'll be, I really do suspect it will still be up in the air. For when that happens, the key thing to do is to claim victory. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. No, we won. I'm sorry. Over. You're wrong. That is a really critical thing. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier on. This bravado that the MAGA movement has of always being right, of always winning, of always being certain of victory is an act. I mean, it's part of a psy war. It's, this is their posture in a psy war. And I'm not just basing that on my own thinking and analysis. This is something I've read recently in one of the documents that uh, they have based their thinking on is there's an American Psy War document called Mind War. And Mind War was a basis on which a lot of Flynn and Stone had, and, and this whole intelligence operation was using as a basis to recruit people. And there's some quotes from Mind War, which are kind of interesting. And Mind War talks about the deliberate, aggressive convincing of all participants in a war that we will win that war. In Mind War, there is no substitute for victory. We must instill a predisposition to inevitable defeat. Then it goes on to say that strategic mind war must begin the moment war is considered to be inevitable. It must seek out the attention of the enemy nation through every available medium, and it must strike at the nation's potential soldiers before they put on their uniforms. It is in their homes and their communities that they are the most vulnerable to mind war. So A, this is presupposing that everything we're going through right now is a precursor to war, but let's leave that aside for another day. But what I am interested in is this bravado in this absolute certainty that there is no substitute for victory, that there is an inevitable victory for Trump's side, which you will hear them. I'm always amazed at how confident they are. The higher the pressure, the more pressure there is, the more confident they appear to be. And maybe this is the truth of it. It's just a piece of strategic a tactic within a strategy of the Psy war. I mean, this just reads to me like a fifth grade book report on Sun Tzu's The Art of War. I mean, could be right. <laughs> I'll say, or there is no substitute for victory. Yes, winning is good. The <laughs> deliberate aggressive, oh, so uh, cool. it must be in the mind of everyone. Yep. Yeah, that's called morale. But they're saying they, should, they need to instill it in the minds of their enemy. So in other words, you penetrate the yeah, enemy. Demor demoralize the yeah. other guys. And, and you yeah. convince the enemy that they're going to lose and yeah. you're going to win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not it's, new. It's, yeah, it's not new. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love how these guys, they're like, they've discovered a, it's like anybody that they discover, like, well, we're doing this. Shh. We've got secure communications and groups and we use code words. It's like. Hey, yeah, yeah. Look, this is an like, old document. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that's publicly available. I didn't get it through some secret <laughs> means. It's it was originated in I think 2004, and then all the way up to 2014 wasn't really no one really used it, except in the Iraq War they decided to use that. And the problem is if you don't provide everyone with the with what you're promising that you'll deliver, it breaks down. So at some point soon their message is going <laughs> to collapse because they can only claim to be so victorious under up until a certain point, and then. It becomes impossible to resist all the pressure that's coming up. It's an attempt to wage war by psyoping the American citizenry, which 
We've done a terrible job in our national security community of securing what I call COGSEC, cognitive security. We have not done well at that of making sure that foreign propaganda does not reach our people. I was just reading an analysis of the budget of, was it the U.S. Information Service? And it was like five times the budget of every single like media company and PR company in America right now. It's like, we used to take this very seriously. And then we got into cable TV and the internet's like, ah, just let every other country have at our population. Whereas other countries do not just give carte blanche entree to the hearts and minds of their citizenry. So we've really I fallen agree. down. I agree. And I think on that note, we still have, as a major network in this country, Fox News, which is clearly, as our investigation has revealed, is run by someone who might be compromised by the Chinese, our biggest adversary in the world. And is that same adversary is penetrating the minds of many Americans to the point where we still have 30% of Americans in a new poll out today that said that they believe that Biden is in power because of fraud that he is only the president of the United States. That's 30%. So that's still kind of stunning when you think about the control of our media operations by foreign entities, by or these people controlled by foreign entities. Yeah, we got to do better at that. I mean, the truth has got to be funded as well as these crafted lies. And uh, that needs attention. And it, look, first, anytime you're trying to make a big shift in your life. You have to admit you have a prop, right? Mm. And we need to admit that our culture, even it's amazing. We have Hollywood. We in invented modern media. We invented the internet and commercialized it. And we didn't figure out how to regulate it such that it couldn't be turned back on us at every level. And because then we sold it to the Chinese. <laughs> That's the problem. Because they had lots of money and we like the money. But I think it's interesting that he's saying possession is nine tenths of the law. I think it's interesting that he's saying that claiming victory is the most important thing. I think seeing their game is important. And then maybe that's one of the things that we're getting out of this documentary, seeing some of the strategies that they employ there. So if you're a historian, though, and you know about Hitler and you know about Lenin, for example, like, so do you know what the word Bolshevik means in Russian? No, I do not know what Bolshevik means. It means the majority. Oh. You know, the many. And then Menshevik would be the minority. Oh. The Bolsheviks were in reality a minority faction, but they named themselves the majority. The majority. And yeah, I think they won, they took power first by election and then just took over the whole apparatus and they didn't have any more elections. And Sounds they just, just like MAGA. Well, yeah. Right. And so Hitler was a minority part of the government and attained that power through sheer violence with thugs like the ones you see Roger Stone talking to her like, yeah, we'll just punch people until they say we won. Sure. That's how the brown shirts were formed as Hitler found these dudes who were PTSD from World War One, who were battle tested. These guys were tough nuts, man. Mm. A lot of those guys had survived World War One. Mm -hmm. And they got back to a Germany that was humiliated and rural countryside. There's not a lot of jobs and there's drunkenness. If you see a parallel here and then Hitler goes and scoops up these guys who know how to fight, pretty angry, and uh, they feel humiliated and he gives them a sense of purpose. And we make comparisons to Nazis, but if you study the rise of the national socialist party, they went to the polls 
and kick the crap out of the candidates and beat people up who didn't say they were going to vote the right way. And we saw that where people started bringing guns around polling places. If history, you should get the joke of what that is. And it's mm. funny, Roger is just all about that script. Yeah, we could have. Had... He's selling it to this new generation, and yeah. they're and guess what? It works. You have these guys that know how to fight, and I can't see into everybody's soul, but maybe they need a sense of purpose. And he's like, I mean. This is exactly what dictators do, especially when they're getting a minority that has perhaps been oppressed. They say, you, the Germans were humiliated after World War I. They were this very powerful nation. They'd been blamed for the entire conflagration of the First World War, of the Great War, when in reality it was very, I'm not pro-Kaiser in this sense, but the more you know about World War I and the more World War I historians you talk to, the fewer conclusions anybody comes to and unifies. Because you, you had the Russians and the, the you know what? going out to the Balkans, the Germans, the French. And, but Germany was really reduced in stature and they have all these people traumatized from the first modern war with all these horrible new technologies that have been put out. And then modern media comes in for the first time with the films of Lenny Riefenstahl and radio broadcasts and they start studying that and you know, these techniques get uh, developed kind of for the first time and they work really great in the Nazis. And then what's so interesting is to see this postmodern version of that where Roger or whoever he's working with, and I think Roger's been around long enough, he, he knows this stuff. I think Trump mm -hmm. does too, mm -hmm. that they are making these noises, they are saying the words. And we had this great stuff where you had Mike Flynn, and this is the knock me out, but to see the cut between Mike Flynn reciting this script and some church lady from 1984 in a cult reciting word for word the same thing. It's like, yeah, they found out that that set of words just really entranced the English speaking mind in America. It works. Do it again. Look, it works again. You get the sense Roger and Donald Trump and some of these guys, they're doing it and they know they're doing it. Yeah. You know, so interesting. Because you mentioned Roger Stone and getting this younger audience and then inciting violence like the Nazis did. Let's look at this clip. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's get right to the violence. Right to Shoot to kill. See him, see an Antifa? Shoot to kill. I'm done with this bullshit. In fact, the voting, uh, the right to the violence, shoot to kill, whatever. He says he's joking. Of course, he's not joking. He's saying what he needs to say in order to incite violence and to entrench something in their minds. I mean, there is violence in the human heart, right? And anyone who's ever felt frustration knows that you can be pushed over your, the edge. This is why we always have a very important role, not controlling free speech in this country, but being vigilant about incitement of violence, an organization of violence. And then the more important things, funding and operations of not just inciting violence, but taking that next operational step to get somebody kinetically into, say, the capital of the United States, armed, financed. And I think that's the stuff that we're barely scratching the surface of what happened in January 6th. And the Department of Justice has said it is the most complex and widespread investigation in the history of the Department of Justice, 150 mm. years. When you think about What's the criminal culpability of somebody who intentionally just sent cryptocurrency to some people who were on a chat board 
talking about how they want the and they want to get them antifas what's the criminal liability of somebody that put up cryptocurrency to hide the fact that they were going to give gas money to these guys so they could drive from i think the sign said columbus or wherever they were coming from mm. maybe they're in indiana let's say they're going to finance the trip from indiana to dc so they can get to the capitol steps and break a window mm. what's the criminal liability there it's probably something in our system well, and, and that yeah. happened there were like tens of thousands of actions like that and those um, are just the domestic ones what happens on the international front how much counterintelligence work is being done to neutralize right? all those right now i mean we're just in the middle of this. We haven't even got to the big act yet. I don't think we're there yet. The other big thing that happened this week was Denver Riggleman. He's a former congressman, was on 60 Minutes, much to the chagrin of many of the people on the January the 6th committee. And uh, when you have the White House switchboard and certain other cell phone numbers connected to Bianca Garcia, that is a link that needs to be investigated. The thread that needs to be pulled is identifying all the White House numbers and why we have certain specific people, why they were talking to the White House. Specific White House phone records are kept secret to protect every administration. But in his book, The Breach, Riggleman wrote he begged the committee to push harder to identify numbers that showed up on the monster. I was one of those individuals, sadly, at the beginning where I, I was very aggressive about these link connections, getting those White House phone numbers. Did you express those concerns to the committee at the time? Yes. What was the response? The response was, go forth and just do the best you can with the resources that we have. Riggleman requested $3.2 million, but only received a fraction of that. His team burrowed into the data. The mother load dropped into their laps, not just phone records, but more than 2,000 actual texts to and from Mark Meadows, former President Trump's chief of staff. There were numbers, but no names. So, Riggleman told us, his team made a giant spreadsheet, painstakingly identifying the people behind each number. And when they did, they were privy to the real-time thoughts of Trump family members, former cabinet secretaries, members of Congress, conspiracy mongers, even a Supreme Court justice's wife. You've called the texts from President Trump's chief of staffs Mark Meadows, the crown jewels. Why? It was a roadmap. It showed actually the evolution of the beginning arguments from alternate electors all the way through rally planning, all the way to day of. It showed conspiracy theories. It showed the saturation of QAnon. How'd you get them? He gave them up. Do you think it was a mistake? If you go back to the simplest explanation, I think he wanted to give up some of his text messages. By the way, I got it. This is a caveat. We don't know if we got them all. But what we got is pretty valuable. You have said these texts provide irrefutable, time-stamped proof of a comprehensive plot at all levels of government to overturn the election. Irrefutable. Early in the text messages, they were talking about alternate electors, I think as soon as November 5th or November 6th. Right off the bat. Come on. Right off the bat. Who's this guy again? Former congressman, Denver Riggleman, I believe is his name. He was a technical expert for the January the 6th committee. He wasn't, uh, he didn't stay on the January 6th committee. He's, there's a bit of a rift between him and the committee. He wrote this book. I don't think it was authorized by the committee to write this book, but in it, he makes some interesting claims amongst them. The name you heard at the beginning by Bianca Garcia. She's uh, the head of Latinos for Trump. In that first scene, in that clip there, you saw that huddle, that famous huddle 
with Cleta Mitchell and Enrique Torres and Stuart Rhodes that happened the night before in an underground garage in Washington, D.C. Well, Bianca is there. She's the fifth person in that huddle. So he's saying, why don't we know more about her? And that's a good question. We don't know much more about her. And maybe that's worth tracking down. The other claim that he made during the interview is that someone called from the White House to the insurrectionist for nine seconds at 4.30 that afternoon. That turns out to be kind of nothing. That turns out to be just a, who knows why that person called the insurrectionist. But I was intrigued by the fact that there are all these calls clearly coming out of the White House. And we've been discussing where was Donald Trump during this whole time? If he says he wasn't watching TV and he wasn't doing any of these other things that everyone else says he was, where was he? And we've thrown around the possibility that maybe he was in a bunker. Maybe he was in a little control center with these other co-conspirators over there. It's quite possible that's still the case. We haven't seen enough of evidence to know exactly where he was on that day. But so I'm intrigued by all those things. I'm intrigued by knowing who phoned whom from the White House. And it's, I think it's important to learn more about that. And if there was direct communication from the White House to the insurrectionists, as many have speculated, some people have said there was a ghost signal. Someone called from the White House or in another way, gave them a ghost signal to actually do what they needed to do at the Capitol. That's all possible. We just don't know yet enough about whether that's all that is true. So that's who this guy is. Well, so he had a company that he was an NSA contractor and now he runs a whiskey distillery. And this is the chan this was the Congress's Jan 6 committee, right? Yes. Okay. So, and this is a really big case, right? Really important case. There's a lot of forensics behind this. This is a congressional committee. They don't necessarily have all the analytical tools of the FBI at their disposal. The, you know, they're using subpoenas to get stuff, right? Yeah. And Mark Meadows just gave stuff up. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about really verifying the forensic details behind digital communications so that they're not spoofed, you'd be surprised at what is even passing muster in federal court these days. There's some fake contractors out there who are spoofing data that's, and it is hard. It's really hard work so, to discern some yeah. of these things, Absolutely, um, you know. I think all they did was intelligence and there's intelligence and there's law enforcement investigations. Anyhow, this is so big. I just feel uncomfortable about trying to tell this story without all the details. Mm. This is a story that needs to be told once and very carefully. And somehow I don't think Mark Meadows is the grand wizard here who conjured this whole thing. I get that you can maybe see from what's been handed. Oh, look. I think they're you trying know, to make him out to be that. I think there is a huge effort to make him out to be the scapegoat. I mean, I believe he's flipped. I don't see any way he would not flip because he's under so much scrutiny and he's so clearly the fall guy for both the Fulton County case and also January the 6th that he's sort of caught in between so ah, much. He's, he's the fall. He's guy. a Congress critter from North Carolina that yeah. couldn't get out of the game. Yeah. And kind of had to go be the White House chief of staff yeah. late in the game. I mean, he's not the guy that it should be falling in my opinion, because I don't think he has much of a, I don't know if he's, his agenda was so ideological as much as he was just the guy. He was just the guy stuck in the place. Maybe he does have a background in being inclined to fascism, but I don't know if that's him. I read those Thomas texts with great interest. I certainly think that she's a much more of a proponent of ideology than he was. He seems to be the receiver of a lot of this stuff. I mean, the real technical details out there, while a 
real Department of Justice investigation is going on. You want to have the element of surprise on a lot of those folks so that when you do pop them with, hey, we're, uh, we get a target letter in and you say that, uh, would you send to this, let's say they send Jenny Thomas a target letter saying, hi, your stuff is in front of a grand jury, which you didn't know about until right now. You got about 48 hours. So if you got an attorney, send one over. And the attorney meets and goes, look, so how do you want to do this? Because this is what we got. And this is what we're probably going to do. So do you want, do you want to start talking now? Or do you want us to put out an indictment? All that's very element yeah. of surprise. That's why grand juries are secret. So that people's reputations are harmed in case they don't charge, right? That's you know, Meadows appeared in front of one today, believed to have appeared in one in Fulton County. It's believed that's, that was the date he was meant to appear. So I, one assumes he was there and then one assumes he gave testimony in the case that really would make him one of the co-conspirators, but it seems to me that he's going to be just a witness, not an actual suspect in this investigation, which is interesting that he probably has flipped there and that's why he's cooperating. Or he just agreed or he just decided not to be a pain in the ass about it and he went. <laughs> like there's right. been this thing of like Steve Bannon shakes his fist, screw your congressional subpoenas and keep your FBI thugs off me all acting all tough. They're all no cry good. when the US Marshals pin them to the ground. Although in this case, I also find it really interesting that he handed over all the same documents to the DOJ with sort of not much of a request. They just sort of handed them over. There does seem to be a deal that he's worked on and I, he'd be the right guy to go after it. Hold on. If you're in that kind of hot water, the DOJ does not need your permission. No, before but he they just did. He didn't have ask. They just, they said, he, they didn't need to be forced to ask. They just get, he handed it over. I mean, yeah. Oh, it's, if they ask you for your stuff, it's good for you to play along, but they usually know what they're asking for before you hand it over. It's all the nexus of a lot of communication. There is a nexus. I mean, certainly if you want to see who was in touch with whom, the Trump's cell phone records are not out there. And we do not know even if he can work with a cell phone. I assume he can, but the reality there, of it, a lot of the communication came through Meadows. Hold on. I got to spook explain this. This uh, one. Yeah. Normally okay. a president wouldn't have a, a cell phone on him, but this is not a normal presidency or a normal group of people. Everybody was covered in these unsecure, stupid devices <laughs> that like 94 countries could listen in on. Like there is somewhere like the world's worst podcast. Yeah. <laughs> of like 10 straight days of these idiots just yammering the Trump and, and calls. <laughs> annoying each other and sneezing. And I mean. It's the world's worst podcast. Oh um, my gosh, it really is. As always, if you'd like to support us, you can join our Patreon program at patreon.com forward slash narrative. And if you're watching on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button so you can always be reminded of when we're broadcasting. Have a good night, Eric, and have a good night, everybody. Every minute of narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative narrative where truth lives one day you'll tell the story of autocrats crooks and kings who came for our freedom A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union.
And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative. Where truth lives.